Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to strength and conditioning coach at Team Murray, Matt Little. Tune in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, so, so excited to bring you Matt Little, who is the strength and conditioning coach for Andy Murray and Team Murray. So, given the couple of years, the, the past couple of years that Andy's had in terms of injuries, and before that, winning Wimbledon and the unbelievable success that he's had, it's an absolute pleasure to get on Matt, who's been by Andy's side for a number of years now, over 10 years. I think he mentions it in this episode exactly how many years he's been around. But like I say, absolute pleasure to get him on. So in this episode, we discuss the, the tough times over the last two years with Andy's, inj- Andy's hip injury. And then obviously making it back in Antwerp to win uh, his last tournament. So a complete shift around in terms of what Matt and the rest of the team have been going through over these last couple of years. We also discussed some of the load monitoring tools and load monitoring techniques that Matt and the team use at Team Murray. And some of the personal challenges that Matt faces being on the road with Andy and and the guys at Team Murray. So a really interesting chat. And I can't stress enough how privileged I feel to, uh, to get Matt on given the kind of life he leads with Andy and um, the ups and the downs. So it's great to get this insight into uh, one of Britain's greatest ever tennis players and greatest ever sportsman. And this comes at a really good time because it's been released a week after the uh, resurfacing documentary on Amazon, which features uh, which features Andy and, and and follows Andy over the last couple of years. But this was this was this was um, recorded before that, so hopefully this complements that documentary. And um, yeah, I'm sure you'll I'm sure you'll love this episode and the documentary. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Matt Little. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning, I'd like to welcome Matt Little, who is the SNC coach for Andy Murray at Team Murray. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Rob. Great to be on. Been a big fan of the uh, podcast for a while. So it's uh, got me through quite a few long journeys to and from work, I've got to say. So, uh, oh, thank you love very what much. Doing. Thanks, mate. Appreciate, appreciate that. That's, that's very kind of you. So anyone that anyone doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a bit of a, a, a brief background on yourself, where you started education-wise, and how you've ended up yep. doing what you're doing now? Yeah, so 
I guess I was one of the lucky ones, really. I knew what I wanted to do for a living very, very, a very, very young age, um, about the age of 16. I sort of, I loved my tennis, came into sport quite late, but loved playing the game and loved training for the game, but realised pretty quickly I wasn't going to be good enough to make any kind of a living out of the, the game. Um, but like I said, I loved the training aspect of it. So I made a decision about the age of 16 that I was going to uh, become a strength and conditioning coach, specifically in tennis. And so just kind of went out, set about a bit of a journey of becoming that, you know, uh, doing my college studies, my university studies, uh, a whole bunch of voluntary work and so on and so forth. Um, so I started working with junior tennis players in uh, Sutton Junior Tennis Centre, which was a centre that sort of prioritised juniors, which was great. So it's good for me to cut my teeth on, on those kids whilst I was working in the gym there, you know, cleaning machines as we've all uh, been through and done that little part of the journey. Um, and then, so I started working with some juniors there, hit a bit of a plateau then. So I decided to kind of go and find the best players and the best coaches. So I went to Australia to volunteer for a year. So I did a year of going around all of the institutes of sports and all of the state tennis centers in Australia to just kind of gain some more experience and get more of an insight into how the very best worked. Um, and as luck would have it, a coach that I met out there then came back to the UK and started working for the Long Tennis Association at one of our high performance centres. Uh, and through that contact and the interview process and the rest of it, I ended up working at the uh, Junior Tennis Academy in Loughborough with our best 12 to 16 year olds. So I was up at Loughborough University for about five years. Um, yeah, so working with our best international juniors. Um, and then through political change, um, they closed that centre down and opened the National Tennis Centre in Roehampton. So I applied for a job there, got that job, uh, and then started working with our very best senior players, uh, one of whom was Jamie Murray um, and his brother. So I started working with him, um, and that went pretty well. He managed to win the mixed doubles at Wimbledon that year. And then met through him, met Andy and got kind of chatting to Andy. Uh, and he was just kind of in the process of changing his team and actually employing like a full team of experts at that time. So, again, kind of as luck would have it, uh, I, I was one of those people. So I was part of a team <clears throat> of, uh, of there was two tennis coaches. There was a lead strength and conditioning coach, Jez Green, uh, and then myself kind of helping him out. Uh, and uh, physio and so on. Um, so, yeah, that, that was back in 2007 I started working with Andy. Um, and then, so I guess just to talk about how my role has changed within the team, because I've been within the team for 12 years now, very much at the start of the, <coughs> of the job, <coughs> excuse me, I was pretty much not the office junior, but the kind of the whipping boy, so to speak, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, doing plenty of forfeits and losing bets and all the rest of it and kind of, yeah, being a bit of the uh, the joker of the pack. Still doing my job, obviously, but, you know, that was kind of also my my role within the team. And um, and then as the years have, have gone on and, and different team members have left, I've kind of, I guess I've, I've my seniority in the team has, has kind of risen, I suppose, um, to now where I'm... Um, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm a, a fairly senior member of the team. I'm the longest standing team member other than, other than his mum and his wife. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I guess I, I've got more of an insight and more say in, in things that happen and, um, and more of a leading role, I suppose you could, you could, uh, you could say. So it's been quite a, quite a journey, quite a, um, a roller coaster, really. But, um, yeah, that's been the last sort of 20 odd years of my life wrapped up in a nutshell, I suppose. Nice. So how has that team developed then from when you first went in and the, there was, you know, there was a change, et cetera. Has that built, been built out or has that stayed the same? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, it's constantly changing in many ways. Um, and this is the, I guess we'll talk about it a fair bit, but the difference with working for an Andy Murray is that he employs you. Um, and so the dynamics there are very different. He employs the team, whereas I suppose people who work in team sports and things, the players themselves are owned or commodities of of the the team itself. So, so it's a, a very different dynamic, um, and so you're kind of having to self manage internally a lot as a team, um, and also manage Andy from underneath, I suppose. Is is the way I would describe that that dynamic as well. So the t the team has 
has changed a lot. I mean, uh, there's been, I don't know, probably eight or nine different team members in those in those 12 years, each with their own characters, with their own myth- methodology, values, beliefs um, as well. So sort of trying to be the constant for Andy when the environment around him is changing all the time uh, and, and the team, you know, is, is changing all the time is, is, um, is something I've kind of prided myself on down the years is kind of being consistent and being there and, I suppose staying loyal in, in a way as well, you know, that, that that I feel like I would be someone who would be the kind of the, the dependable kind of constant uh, alongside his family, of course, but in terms of his, his, his training and his work life, that um, I guess that's a role that I've adopted kind of informally as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really it's really interesting dynamic that, and I, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but it's, it's, a, it's something that's, come up a couple of times in previous podcasts where like yeah. I say you have a team you, you work in a, um, a football club for example the players mm. have to work with you because you're there um, yes yeah there is a, obviously a trend of people getting their own people but while at the club they work with you yeah and obviously you're different because if Andy didn't want to work with you well he won't work with you just work with someone else so there's a That's it. there's a in terms of keeping like you've got a mortgage to pay you've got but for in the table and then mm. there's that relationship that you've got to do right for for you and for for him as well that's yeah. that's quite a that's quite a complex kind of thought process of, of to do the right thing but for, for Andy but also to do the right thing for you yeah. as well it's a it's a tight rope yeah. to be honest given depending on the the severity of the subject and and the seriousness or gravity of the subject it's a tight rope that you walk um, and you have to accept that you're definitely not going to win every battle. You've got to pick your battles. You know, there are some times when you just absolutely have to dig your heels in and say, no, I'm sorry. You know, you pay me as an expert and this is my my genuine expert opinion based on my experiences. So this definitely is or definitely is not happening. Um, and then there are other subjects which are more up to up for debate. And that's also changed down the years because Andy's got older and more experienced too. So when we were first employed as a team, we were quite dictatorial towards him. He was sort of, uh, I'd say he was 18, 19, something like that. Um, So we were quite, maybe slightly older, but we were quite dictatorial towards him in terms of what he should be doing. Uh, And that that dynamic has changed. You know, it became more of a conversation, a two-way conversation uh, as he got older. Um, But also there's something to do with... you know, you have to influence someone in that situation. I certainly these days, I now have to influence and convince rather than tell. Um, and the best way to do that, uh, bar none, is is making him think that things are his idea. Um, and, and that's a bit of a fine art as well. Um, so, you know, I guess people would have their own ways of doing this. And as you mentioned, we talked about Brett Bartholomew before, you know, people have their ways of influencing. Um, but, but certainly my way of influencing Andy would be to make suggestions over a period of time, just dropping things into conversation that I think would be good ideas. And then perhaps if I find a study that might back that up, you know, just drop that into a WhatsApp chat or something, you know, but just generally sort of hint and then just leave it. Because if I continue to push that issue, uh, if he doesn't particularly believe in that subject, then I'm just gonna I'm gonna put him off it altogether. Whereas actually, if I just drop hints and subtly just let it marinate, then you never know. In a few weeks' time, he will turn up and say, "Oh, I'd actually like to start doing this." And then you say, "Oh, what a great idea! Fantastic! <laughs> Why don't we give that a try?" Um, and that, for me, is the best way of trying to influence. Um, influence that situation really because you know these these guys and girls are extremely high performers they've got they've got big egos uh, they also have very strong views on what they should and shouldn't be doing like I say especially more experienced ones like Andy um, so so yeah the, the dictatorial approach no longer works um, and and you know you'll get short shrift I think for uh, for, for, for for dictating to someone. So you, yeah, you've got to put more thought into it than that. So what you, you mentioned that there was a couple of change, there's been a couple of changes over the years that you've worked with Andy. Mm. So and and you obviously haven't changed because you are still there. So it, are them things that you've just mentioned some of the 
reasons why you have stuck around because you've been able to evolve from when Andy was 1920 to, to now? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, particularly the, the the regime of tennis coaches that have, that have, you know, I'm sure people who work in football who, who see a succession, different managers have similar experiences where you have to adjust to what's coming in or you don't. Uh, and if you don't, like you say, then that's you done. Um, but if you want to stick around, and for me, the best way to do the job is to still be in the job, which sounds obvious, but, um, you know, is to think, okay, well, how do I need to adapt to this person, to this situation? And then how do I influence that over time, over the long term? Um, you know, occasionally when a new coach comes in, you know, you have to kind of initially put your foot down and say, look, this is the plan. We have a current plan at the moment and this is what we're going to follow unless you have some really strong views about changing that this is the plan that we've been doing and what that, that has been working from a physical perspective but other times it's good to just kind of sit and watch and wait for that person to come in and give them the uh give them the the reins i suppose for a while and, and see how that develops and try and influence it over time and I think you've got to weigh up and you've got to feel, and I talk a lot about feel, and I know other coaches talk a lot about getting a feel for situations and weighing up that situation. Um, and I think that's such a, an important skill to develop is, is developing your feel over time for situations. So let's say a coach comes in who's got a big personality, very dictatorial, isn't really interested in in, uh, in what the support staff have to say in, in the immediate term, then then you have to accept that situation, wait, and again, influence over time, dropping suggestions in, um, bringing ideas at the right times, rather than clashing and saying, well, no, no, this is exactly how we do it. So, yeah, I've kind of gone around the houses a bit there, but oh, it's, it's it, it, th those situations are, are continually changing. Um, and, and I'd like to talk probably a little bit later on about, about the politics of, of long-term injury as well, because I think that's well, certainly as an SSC coach, something I've not heard spoken about much in conferences. I don't know if the medical profession speak about it more, but the the politics of everyone's behaviours during long-term injuries is also uh, a very, very interesting scenario for me that we've obviously just been through. Yeah, we'll dive into that in a little bit. I mean, one thing I just want to touch on there is, and it, it came up in a conversation I had with Ian Piper, who looks after <clears throat> the SNC for the Brownleys, and it was a very similar situation in terms of the information that is presented to them, maybe it be a research or a book, just to try to influence safely um, what what may be coming in the future to obviously, like you say, make it their idea. And that's something, mm. something I don't hear very often in, for instance, a football or a, um, a rugby environment. Obviously, it's different dynamics of a team, mm. et cetera. Yeah. But what, what's Andy been like in terms of, like, if you sent him a research paper or – an article that maybe just subtly um, dropping a hint that this may be something to do. How has how has he been in terms of receiving that and digesting that information? Has that been something that's been really positive that he really enjoys? Yeah, if it's a, if it's something that he really wants to do, or if it's a subject that's really important to him, um, let's let's say you know his hip his hip injury. You know, he and I, I expect many other athletes will be the same. Will research it to the to the nth degree, and will know more about that subject than 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 most people. You know, they will obsess over that subject and research it. So, so you immediately have to become a bit of an expert in that subject. You know, very very quickly because the you know his expectations will be look you know this is important to me. I want you to know about it. So, so that's almost him leading the training in a way, and him, him guiding things, which is great. You know, if he's coming coming to the table with with lots of ideas. Um, in terms of something that I would like him to do, uh, and the training modality that I would like him to do, then yeah, he 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 will read papers on it. Um, he he will want facts and figures on it. He will ask a lot of questions about it, especially, like I say, the older he's got, the more questions he's asked. He won't just do things now because I'm an expert and I think he should do it. Um, and so, but he, he's very data-driven. He's very interested in, in, in trying different 
things and things that might may not have been done before from a strength and conditioning perspective, uh, new methods. So so he's great from that point of view. But I've got to make sure that when I turn up for that conversation, one, I've got to time that conversation correctly at the right time, not after he's just come off after a loss or whatever, but making sure, you know, getting a feel for the right time to drop it in. And then I know that when I have that conversation, I better be ready with evidence, facts, uh, anecdotal evidence as well, stories from other athletes and so on. Um, you know, I've got to, I've got to back up my argument or be prepared to back up my argument because I, it's unlikely that I'm going to say we should try this and he's just going to say, yeah, that's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, there's so many similarities in that chat that I had about Alistair Brownlee coming yeah. with suggestions for different technologies. Why aren't we using this? Um, because X, Y, and Z, you've got to be ready for them kind of conversations. And yes, yeah, you do. And that, I mean, only two examples of Andy and um, Alistair, but obviously two guys that have been incredibly successful over 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I think if you get caught on the hop with some of those subjects, which again Andy likes to do occasionally, he'll just turn up and, and drop it on your lap. I think it's okay to say I don't know, um, but I'll find out. I, I think that's that's the, you know buy yourself a bit of time and not pretend to be an expert in it and fluffy lines. But um, I think it's okay to say, look, I don't know about that actually, um, but I, but I, I'll know a person who does, and I'll I'll make sure I get the lowdown from them. Because um, athletes also speak to other athletes, as you know. Um, you know, so the tennis locker room is rife with, uh, oh, look, you know, you've got to try this guy, or you've got to, you know, I've tried this method and it's fantastic. This piece of equipment has saved me. Um, and so, again, you know, you're then getting looks to say, well, why aren't I do- using that piece of equipment? Or what do you know about that piece of equipment? You know, so it's. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a minefield, really. Um, but you know, again, because I've been with him twelve years, I've got the ability to say, look, you know, yes, I've heard of that, and actually, it's rubbish, or or no, I haven't heard of that. I've got no idea about it, and I'll definitely look into it. You know, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, again, when it comes to injuries. Uh, you know, Google the Google doctor <laughs> is uh, a bit of a nightmare to deal with. Yeah, um, but uh, and again, I'm sure every medical professional working in sport knows that. But you know, you've got you, you've got to be ready for those conversations. You've got to back yourself as well. Um, you know, you've got to be confident because elite athletes sniff out doubts quicker than anybody and um you know they, they, they know they know if you if you know what you're talking about on a particular subject so you've got to you've got to you've got to be ready mm-hmm. so one thing that's been reasonably public is uh andy's use of or your use of, of catapult so was that something yes. that was introduced or rec- recommended no suggested by mm-hmm. him or was that something that you brought in over time what's the story behind that yeah, we bought it in over time. And during my work with the LTA, the sports science department was looking at catapult. This is years and years ago. Obviously, it's been around for for a while. Um, and now, with the the more of the live data that that you can get, it's much for me. That's much better to 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 use that with with the player. Um, and this is where it, it, this is a subject that's really close to my heart. Actually, and something I'm quite passionate about because. Because the technology now is there for us to be able to get objective data on the tennis session, um, I, I, it, that's, that for me is a bit of a game changer in terms of how tennis loading is prescribed. Um, tennis as a sport, I think pretty much across the board, throws far too much volume at its athletes. Um and up until now, we haven't really been able to show that or prove it really because ubiquitously tennis sessions would be prescribed in duration always. Um, you know, and other sports are way ahead of us in terms of this. You know, football and rugby are way ahead of us in terms of learning about the demands of their sport now. But tennis has got a huge piece of work to do uh, in getting objective data of training sessions. Um and so, you know, having started to use that with Andy years and years ago and, and, and we've kind of grown as the technology has grown, we've grown with it, you know, we are now informed about his practice. And, and again, it's not to say 
uh, to not be training players hard and not having hard sessions. Of course not. We, we all know there needs to be overload in sport. Um, so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But for me, the ability for to tell a tennis coach how hard their hard session is and how easy their easy session is, is, is of, of huge, huge importance, I think, because having measured the player load for tennis sessions across the board, you know, there are junior athletes that are that are probably regularly experiencing five, six tennis sets worth of load in their training on a daily basis. Um, and, and for me, that, that just can't be right. You know, their junior players only ever play three set matches. Uh, okay, senior men players play five set matches. Um, but why would you expose someone who only plays three set matches to six sets worth of load on a daily basis. Um, but the, the issue is, is that, you know, we haven't known that really until now, until the wearable technology has been developed to tell us about that. Um, but I still think that a lot of tennis and a lot of tennis centers, a lot of tennis coaches, uh, a lot of the, um, the governing bodies really need to cotton on to this idea very quickly now because we do know differently now uh, we know we know better than to be prescribing tennis sessions purely on duration and every snc coach and sports science practitioner in the world knows that all, every sport has now moved to the next level of physicality and tennis is no different you know tennis in the 70s and 80s involved much slower movements um different movements but 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 generally slower because of the, te- the, the the ball speed, the racket technology, etc. You know, the tennis players of this day and age are, you know, speaking on the men's side, you know, they're 80, 90 kilos of, of pure muscle and they're, they're, you know, tearing around the court at seven, eight meters a second, jamming on the brakes and, and, and sprinting back in the, in the opposite direction with huge forces going through their, through their bodies. So, if the sport has developed and changed that much, I think the training methodologies really need to catch up with that. Um, and that's why I link this to the discussion about catapult or any wearable technology for that matter. Um, you know, we now have the technology to, to analyze that and to utilize it in a way that informs practice more. And I feel like tennis has got a really long way to go to um, to kind of upskilling about the actual demands of a practice session versus the demands of a match, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I read the um, the short article it did for Catapult about about the use of it, and it, it yes. you mentioned a couple of names of pro players that were using it, but I think there's only maybe two or three, maybe three or four that you mentioned. Is yes. wh- wh- why why if the lack why is the lack of adoption at the at the top end? There's, there's an, there is an issue with the technology in tennis because a lot of the movements are quite finite and quite small. You know, the, you know, you, most movements are three meters or you know, or less. The, the technology can't really pick up acceleration data as well for tennis. Um, you know, because players aren't in those acceleration zones for long enough for the technology to pick it up. So I think a lot of people have kind of said, look, it's not that accurate for tennis, so let's just leave it. But for me, even even if you just looked at player load, um, that that's a, a very very telling factor. And and if you're most often, I mean, I'm dealing with an N of one. I'm dealing with Andy, you know, one player. So if I stick the catapult on him on Monday and stick it on him on Tuesday, I've got comparable data in my opinion. Um, and and for me, measuring something is so much better than measuring nothing. Um, it, it, we've actually had a bit of a breakthrough in the sport in that wearable technology has now been approved in ITF tournaments. The tournaments themselves have to individually approve the usage of it. Um, but uh, the next-gen finals that have been played, so it's the best male players, the best younger generation of male players, the top eight of those have just – they're involved in a playoff uh, in Milan, they, that's where they have their year-end finals, uh, and that tournament approved the use of catapult during the event, so that the coaching teams and the staff could see the demands of the matches of the players. So that that, that information won't be published, but they, at least those players, are learning about the demands of their match. And so my hope is 
that that filters down through the next generation of tennis players and, and actually the older players see those younger players potentially using that technology and thinking why I, I need to I need to be using this too if I'm gonna if I'm gonna stay ahead of the of the game here and so I'm hoping that we start to see more and more players using that wearable technology and there are it, it's starting to happen but for me it's not happening fast enough and widely enough um, in our sport because because like I say that and, and I'm not talking about wearing it all day every day either you know I think people can use it learn from it adapt you know adapt their tr- their training accordingly and, th- and then leave it alone for, for a little while and then perhaps revisit it it's not something that I'm talking about seeing players using it for every session for their entire lives and wearing it for every match no, not the case really I think we just need to learn how hard is my tennis session compared to the actual demands of the match that, that this player is going to play um, because like I say, I, I think as a sport, you know, uh, most coaches come from the, you know, let's make sure they work hard enough. Let's make sure they're tough enough and all the, you know, every, every sport ha- has these conversations. Um, but we know differently now. We know that the sport is more athletic and we know we can tell the demands of training. So really important, I think, that people start to, in in, in in our sport and other, I don't know how good other racket sports are. You know, I haven't asked badminton or squash uh, how they cope, but we, we we need to catch up with football and rugby for sure in this area. Mm-hmm. So would, not going into too much into the weeds of what you actually collect and how, but would player load be your kind of go-to metric that you'd, that you'd use to compare matches yeah. versus training? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, um, we try and get some Axel, D-cell, things like that. Um, I, I, max speed works works pretty well on it for me. Um, they are now also getting, I think, sort of shot detection technology. So that even the, the, the amount that I know about it is probably just the tip of the iceberg of what they – all of these different types of technology can now tell you. But for me, just simply having a conversation with a coach to say, today was 600-player load. Um, and we've got a light day tomorrow, so why don't we why don't we look at three hundred player load? Um, you know, having a conversation that's that simple would be a huge leap forward for for our sport, in my opinion. Uh, you know, we, we as a team has been doing have been doing that for a little while now, uh, especially with Andy's return to play using that the, that metric in particular in terms of the impact load that's going through Andy's hips. Um, it has been really important for us to prescribe tennis sessions. And again, we don't use it all the time now because we've learned this type of tennis session elicits this load on his body. Okay, we now know that. Good. You know, and this so this is a hard, heavy day. This is a medium day. This is a light day. You know, it, it, it's that simple. You know, that we don't have to, it doesn't have to be too complicated. And I'm sure we could learn more if we if we want to drill further down into it, but. Just that message in itself for me would be enough. Are you able to? You're able to get player load live now through the through the app. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And the, the technology now is that it's there's an app on your phone now, um, so that's just live. I mean, I used to walk around with the antenna, the laptop. <laughs> you know, absolute disaster through airports. You know, what is this? Is it? You know, looked look like a rocket launcher. You know. You know, getting it confiscated and arguing with customs and all the rest of it. Now, it's just an app on the phone. You know, that updates. You know, Andy does a, a you know a session and asks me what the player load is after half an hour. Yeah, it's this. Okay, great. We move on. You know, and so it, it, it's becoming so much simpler. There really is. I mean, obviously, there's a cost implication to it, but there really is. You know, not much excuse for professional tennis players to not be accessing this kind of data i think there, there might be a bit of a fear of the unknown with it um and like i say for me my message to tennis coaches would be that it's not we are not trying to eradicate hard training here that's not what we're doing um it's to be able to tell you right okay you want to work a player hard well i'll tell you how hard that session was because sometimes the hard sessions they think are hard actually aren't that hard um and very often the easy sessions they think are easy aren't that easy uh, you end up with this kind of middle ground the whole time, um, and so yeah, I think I just think I think we can learn significantly more than we know currently. Uh-huh. Really. 
So we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Matt. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discussed the last couple of years and Andy's injury, Andy's hip injury, and some of the rehab that Team Murray and, and Matt and obviously Andy himself went through over the last two years and the challenges that brings both physically and psychologically amongst the team as well. So really, really interesting part two coming up. Just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And I've been over there a couple of times to see their warehouse and see the equipment that gets pumped out of, uh, of that manufacturing hub in Belfast. And it's some really, really quality stuff. So if you are interested in adding to the equipment that you've already got, in your gym or facility or you're wanting what everyone wants but if you're looking for a full gym fit out definitely consider the guys at black box some really cool stuff some custom lots of custom stuff that they can provide uh, and not just logos and different colors but actually custom kit to um to manufacture for your needs so if you're looking to uh have a look, look into some of their recent projects Head over to their Instagram or Twitter where they can be found at BLK Box Fitness or head over to their website blkboxfitness.com. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter, at Hawking Dynamics. While we're, on the, while we're on the subject of technology, and it's something that I'm, I'm interested in, is there any of the tech that you've implemented or tried to implement that you've binned or didn't think was suitable, but has now become suitable as, as it developed? Um, yeah, I mean, we tried the IMU um, ankle braces and i'm sure that they are that that technology is is advancing by the by the minute as well so i'm sure i'd have a better experience i it just didn't i i, I i'm not brilliant with technology anyway yeah. uh, and I, I i just couldn't interpret the data quick enough really um you know someone like andy wants it there and then um we've used force plates uh, quite a lot recently especially to give us objective data on on return to play and making sure that you know that that joint can can absorb and produce the amount of force that it's going to be required to on the on the court, both in a fresh and a fatigued state. So we've, so yeah, I mean, those would be the things that we've probably invested in a bit. Um, I uh, we've we've used um, other kind of the the Vicon system in terms of bio biomechanics for looking at Andy's change of direction and looking at his mechanics in landing and jumping and things as well. We've, uh, we've we've been looking at that kind of stuff as well, but that was in the lab at St Mary's with the team there. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that wasn't anything sort of portable. Okay. Nice. No, sweet. Um, we also we also look at the camera based technology as well. So tennis has uh, usage of Hawkeye. Yep. Um, so that also tracks the player as well as the ball. Um, it's a little bit um, camera based stuff is a little bit noisy in terms of the data because the the racket affects what the camera thinks is your center of mass um so it does it does create a bit of noise in the data but if you can filter that out you do also get some interesting and valuable data for for, for match play which has been which has been good that we look at okay mate. sweet well one thing i want to cover before i know you're uh, you're a busy man so i don't, I don't want to keep you too long but one thing i want to one thing i want to chat about is the is obviously the, the thing that's been dominating the last probably year of your life which is mm. the, uh, the the hip injury yeah 
How long? How long has that been going on? Has that been going on quite a while? Yeah, it's a, well, it's actually it's been a, a two-year process since he kind of broke down with the injury itself. I mean, it was, you know, it was. We we're just talking about it the other day. It, it was throbbing and sore for a long time before that. Um, but that was just something that Andy just used to manage, and we used to manage as a team. Um, but Andy played a match against Stan Wawrinka in the French Open in 2017. Uh, and it just, yeah, it obviously went past the tipping point, basically, um, and he'd been struggling with it ever since, really. So, yeah, we've been through a journey of two years, really, where we were obviously trying to manage the injury conservatively, trying to get the rehab done, trying to strengthen it, stabilise it, get the range back, uh, and so on and so forth. But um, so that we did kind of eight, nine months months of that um, came up short. So then he decided to have uh, the first surgery, which was uh, more of a sort of keyhole surgery, kind of try and clean it up a a little bit. Um, We then rehabbed that for another, well, basically another year, trying different methods of rehab and things. Uh, We we went to see Bill Knowles, Um, out in the States as well and just tried every different approach to work with that um, situation and that surgery to to maximize the benefits of that and ultimately just came up short. It just wasn't rehabbable. It wasn't fixable, unfortunately. Um, So Andy really faced this choice of, of a resurfacing surgery, which, you know, the, the death knell for people's careers in terms of, of having uh, surgery that's that invasive, you know, was was the reason for putting it off for so long. Um, but you know, another tennis player, Bob Bryan, a doubles player, had had the surgery and was was pretty positive about it, um, and was saying, "Look, you know, I think there's a, there's a chance you'd be able to come back. I'm not sure how it's going to look, but there's a chance you're going to be able to come back. So it's worth giving it a try." So in January of last year. That was kind of when Andy made that decision to go for that surgery. Uh, he famously went to the Australian Open, tried to play. Um, you know, he, he got pretty upset in a press conference before the tournament, um, you know, and people kind of assumed that that was him really announcing his retirement from tennis, uh, which actually wasn't ret- announcing his retirement from tennis. <laughs> he was just pretty upset at the time and, you know, in, in obviously genuine distress. Um, and 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 didn't know how the surgery would turn out. You know, none of us none of us knew how the surgery would turn out. So um, went for the surgery, had that in um, in early February, and yeah, rehabbed that. And the rehab's gone well, significantly better than any of us could have could have hoped for, really. Um, and so he started playing some doubles in the summer at Wimbledon on the grass and then played a little bit more doubles uh, in the States. We decided to give the singles um, a try. And that's gone from strength to strength. You know, obviously it was a bumpy road, but um, yeah, about uh, two months maybe of playing singles tennis. And um, and he won. He finished the year by winning the European Open tennis tournament in Antwerp. Uh, and beating Stan Wawrinka in the final of that tournament in a, in a really difficult, long three-hour match. Um, or oh, it was a long match anyway. And so, yeah, it was, um, it's been an incredible journey. And, we, you know, we weren't sure if Andy would ever win a, you know, ever win a tournament again. We, you know, we weren't sure how many matches he would win again, to be honest, um, let, let alone winning tournaments. And, and eight months after surgery, He's, he's won a tournament, which has just, you know, exceeded all of our, ex, our wildest expectations, really. So it's been uh, it's been a heck of a journey. You know, we've been uh, we've been through really, really dark times. And anyone who's been with an athlete with a long term injury will will definitely be able to relate um, really dark times. Um, so for us to be sitting here now having a discussion about Andy winning tournaments, you know, it's just absolutely incredible, frankly. Mm-hmm. So how how was that like? Everyone saw the press conference in in Australia and was like, "This is this is ha- absolutely heartbreaking to watch." Yeah. Obviously, the, the the reality maybe was a little bit different to what was perceived. I like yeah. the retirement, etc. Yeah. But how how have you dealt with that psychologically, and also helped 
Andy and the rest of the team deal with that psychologically? Yeah, it's it's been a, a process that's that I've learned so much from in terms of like we mentioned earlier the, the sort of the politics and the the managing the entire situation around a long-term injury because you've got to manage yourself and your own emotions and your own fears because again you know Andy's my boss if he stops playing tennis I'm out of a job yeah, so managing thinking, yeah. managing those emotions um also managing everyone else's fears because everyone else is in the same boat so trying to help them through that situation as well um then managing the athlete managing their family and their expectations and their fears around around the process the management company and the commercial sponsors you know managing them and their expectations and then you've got this whole world of other other um influences which are you know the media but also other experts that are reaching out and saying look i can fix this i know his problem i've i've got the answer um so there's experts that you say no to but there's also experts that you say yes to that you allow into into the inner circle to to help out and how you manage those experts as well so there's every single day is this kind of constant emotional um flux of of what may or may not be happening politically in a way at that time as well as your own fears and insecurities as well and so so first of all i think obviously it's good to have your own support network and and people that you can trust to speak to privately about your own emotions and your own feelings um but also making sure that you i made sure that i was there for other team members to just kind of listen and hear them out about their fears and anxieties you know it, it it's pointless saying to people in that situation look everything's going to be fine you know we're going to it's all going to work out just fine no no issue you know people have genuine fears and 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 so i think just listening in that in those situations and just allowing people to just offload is huge um and kind of self-counseling each other as a team by just listening to each other is, was a really important aspect of that process also um everyone in the team has ideas about how to help and how to improve things uh, and that may involve them not staying in their own lane in terms of their views so the tennis coach may have an idea uh, about some strength exercises that he's seen or heard of you know i might have an idea of how the tennis session should look you know we all might have heard of the latest medical intervention which you know to speak to the physio and the doctor about so being secure in your own ego and allowing people to make suggestions within the team knowing that they're actually they're not undermining you or suggesting that you don't know what you're talking about but they're just wanting the best for the situation uh so you've got to put your ego to one side leave that um leave your ego at the door and just be open to listening to everyone's suggestions and not being too defensive and then dealing with with outside experts that that do come in is again a very very tricky process really because you first of all you don't want to appear defensive you don't want to appear kind of unwelcoming because you're going to them for a reason you need their help but you also have to manage their communication with the athlete very closely and again it's different in a situation with Andy where we are such a small tight knit team and everyone's got a lot of skin in the game versus let's say a football team where there's 20 players and this just happens to be one of the injured ones whether they're an important player or not you know I'm sure changes the dynamic but still you know life still goes on that player is just rehabbing this is our entire lives so so it is quite emotive uh, and an expert that comes in could throw out a statement which could throw the entire team into turmoil and the athlete and the family and you know things can one comment that's too extreme from an an outside expert can really you can be picking up the pieces for weeks and months afterwards so so speaking to that expert before they come in getting you know trusting that expert before they come in and, and and certainly not putting words in their mouth that's definitely not what you're trying to do but just to make sure that that conversation goes smoothly um and correctly is is also a dynamic that's that you really have to work hard to manage 
And again, I'm not sure this is something we talk about enough as an industry. Like I said, I've not heard it spoken about much. Um, is, is how teams get through the, the different dynamics of long-term injury around an athlete. Because again, also the athlete is going online, researching researching the latest technology, the latest innovations, you know, wanting to speak to the latest expert because they're desperate as well. You know, it's their career that's hanging in the balance too. So dealing with those situations maturely and calmly as well is, is, is tricky. Um, then there's then you've got the trust situation as well. You know your rehab program isn't working. That's the reality. Whether you know you're you're working hard to to, to, to do the rehab and, and actually that work isn't isn't improving the injury. So there's a trust situation there between you and the athlete and the rest of the team as well, where people are saying, look, you know, this is your plan. It sounds good, but the reality is it's not working. How how did you, how did you how did you deal with that? as a practitioner when things weren't because i'm guessing like like any like a football manager things stop working people start doing things they wouldn't normally do yeah just to try to fix the issue yeah that's one thing you've got to be careful of is not just knee jerking in every direction and knowing that you've got a plan and a process uh and that you need to see it through um really not not bloody in a bloody minded way if it's clearly not working you obviously need to change but but also, if someone says, oh, look, I've got a different way of doing it, and you just instantly change track, then that completely undermines your plan in the first place. So, so again, managing how that goes, managing those discussions is a very, very careful, um, careful kind of path you need to tread. Because, again, if you react aggressively or defensively to that situation – You've put yourself then in a box of oh okay he's just he's just defending his methods because he's insecure about it you know so you have to be open and like I say put your ego to one side but also balancing that with being strong and sticking to your the, the courage of your convictions as well um, so so yeah it's um it, it I don't think there's any easy answer at, at all. But one thing I do think is really important is, is communication, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big word that is, you know, and everyone talks about it. But communicating all the time with everybody, I think, is really important. Being open and honest in your communication, um, I think, showing trust and showing faith in your other teammates or your team members as a support staff is huge for them. You know, so sticking together as a team for me, would be the number one thing to, to in terms of getting an athlete through a long-term injury is sticking together as a team would be would be number one on, on the list of priorities. That if you have disagreements, you know, have your discussions away from the athlete, you know, have your disagreements because they're going to happen away from the athlete and then come to the athlete on a united front with something that you agree on um, is the best way to kind of to work as a team, to trust each other. Because if you feel like there's a member of your team that has a hidden agenda or a different agenda or disagrees or is speaking to the athlete privately, um, you know, with a different agenda, that, that can make things unravel very, very quickly. And it's only going to end badly, that situation, not just for you as a support team, but also for the athlete. There's only there's only going one way. Um, so, so, yeah, communicating constantly with everybody and being open and honest and leaving your ego at the door is 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 the best advice that i can really give anybody who's who's going through that situation one last thing that i'd like to ask you and it's it's it was born out of the um i was stalking your twitter last night by the way <laughs> and uh, it was just the, the picture i think you'd won the Antwerp tournament and you've yeah. gone out, you must have gone out for dinner and there was a picture of you four <laughs> together. Yeah. Great, great picture, by the way. And just made me think yeah. how, how easy or difficult is it to, to keep your relationship with Andy, I suppose with Andy and, you know, Jamie back in the day of mm. you're the coach, but you're also there to support, but it's not about you, but you want to build a relationship. How difficult is that to just to know when to step in, when to step back, when to be considerate of their kind of personal yeah. time, because you spend so much time together. 
Yeah. To me, that is the number one factor in being successful at this level of sport as a support team member is is knowing that, you know, and, you know, we talked about it, soft skills is a buzzword at the moment, but it is something that I really, really fundamentally believe in, that it's um, this about how to be, not what to do. You know, we so long as you have a level of competency in what you do, of course you need to be good at what you do. But for me, what makes decent practitioners uh, successful at this level is that having that feel for when to put your arm around someone, when to say absolutely nothing, when to just turn up and just be there, uh, when to lead and be proactive and really grab the ball by the horns and say, no, no, this is what's happening. Having a feel for every single one of those situations. And I think experience does bring you that, but I do also think there are some there are some rules I think that we can explore and discuss as an industry as well of, of in this scenario, you really should do this. Um, you know, I, I think we, we, we need to try and talk about that stuff a lot more because that's the skill set, I think, which keeps athletes wanting to ha- wanting you around. Um, and you've only got to mess that up once or twice and people then don't want you around anymore and you can't implement your fantastic program that you've written. Um, so those skills for me are, are the reason why I'm still sitting here in a job with Andy today um, is – yeah, knowing, knowing when I'm being a pain in the butt, uh, knowing when he's being a pain in the butt and, and taking a step step away, being conscious of that, knowing when he's really upset, knowing when he's really happy, you know, all of those things and how to react in those situations, how to deal with success, how to deal with defeat, how to deal with pressure, um, all of these scenarios that get thrown at you, how to deal with change. Um massively important I think in terms of being successful more important in my opinion than knowing you know what what sets and rep range for for strength development is is the right one you know um, of course that should be underplayed that that is important of course it is but the the people that I've seen that are that have been around good athletes for a long time they, they feel the situation very very well and the only ones that stick around that don't feel situations very well are the ones that are just so damn good at what they do. The athlete will put up with them being around anyway because <laughs> they are so good at what they do, you know? So, so some people are just that good at their jobs that people will part with them anyway. Um, so, you know, there are those people out there, don't get me wrong. And they are very successful people and they are, they are brilliant at what they do. Um, but for the rest of us who are just trying our best and trying to improve and trying to, you know, trying to do our best each day, I think you do yourself a huge favour in 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 learning feel and learning how to be, rather than how to do. If that makes sense. Absolutely makes perfect sense. Well, I've kept you three minutes over quarter past nine, so apologies, <laughs> apologies for that. No but worries. Anyone- Anyone that wants to dig into a little bit more detail about what we've discussed or just ask any questions, what's the best place for people to, to reach out to you? Would Twitter be the best place? Yeah, I'm, 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 I check my Twitter the most, I suppose. I use that as my kind of newspaper. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm on Twitter a fair bit. Um, I do post a bit of Instagram stuff about the work that I do. Um, but people can always reach out to me uh, in private message me on Twitter and things like that as well. But also Andy's got the, um, the movie um, of, of our last few years, the journey of the last few years coming out as well, um, called resurfacing. And, uh, so that people will be able to watch that and, and kind of just, just, just look at what we've been through the last few years, what he's been through more importantly, the last few years. And, and like I say, for us to be sitting here now off the back of him actually winning a tournament only eight months in to, uh, to the rehab is, uh, yeah, it, it's quite some story. So, uh, well worth a watch and, and let me know what you think of it. Absolutely. I can't wait. So was the, was the Antwerp thing, was the Antwerp, um, event included in the documentary or was that too Yeah, late? I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure. Cause it was kind of, it's kind of been done and dusted. Um, and then he won the tournament. So I don't know. I don't know how it ends. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, cause I bet, I bet Amazon had their, Fingers crossed, toes crossed, like yeah, just exactly. win this because this tops it right off. Exactly, but, um, yeah. It, but it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting how they how they finish it. But either way, you know, 
the uh, the, the process was there, uh, and uh, and yeah, he got the result that he got, which is yeah, quite 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 spectacular. So who knows how the future is going to go? You know, we took, we got no because there's so few people that have been through this process, and particularly singles tennis players, no one's been through this process. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. Anything could happen. But mm-hmm. uh, but while I while I sit here speaking to you now, it's uh, it's pretty good. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Matt. Really do appreciate you taking the time and uh, especially being so really open in, 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 the, in the journey. So I love it. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, anytime. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoy the chat with Matt. As I said at the start, I feel absolute privileged to be able to get him on and chat through some of his experiences with Andy over his career. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Black Box Fitness and Omega Wave for sponsoring this podcast today. So we've got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, um, but I had some really cool interest in the last couple of episodes of the podcast with Alex Natera and Pierre Barrier. So if you haven't checked them out, make sure you do. Also, ensure that you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. So every Thursday morning UK time, you will get a high quality guest from the world of sports performance onto your phone, tablet, or PC. So thank you again for your support, and I will chat to you next week.